you're visiting with us this morning, on Sunday mornings we're looking at the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. And we pick things up in Luke chapter 14 this morning. We'll be looking at specifically verses 1 through 14. Now it happened as he, that is Jesus, went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, that they watched him closely. And behold, there was a certain man before Jesus who had dropsy. And Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? But they kept silent. And he took the man and healed him and let him go. And then he answered them, saying, Which of you having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him regarding these things. So he told them a parable to, to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places. This is what he said to them. When you're invited by anyone to a wedding feast, don't sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by the host. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, Give place to this man, and then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, Friend, go up higher, and then you shall have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And then he also said to the man who had invited him to the dinner, When you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word this morning. And we thank you for the truth that is found in it, Lord, truth that will never, ever fail us in this life or the life to come. We're grateful for your eternal word. And we know that it's your Holy Spirit that's able to take it off of the pages of this book and write it on the fleshly tablets of our heart. And so that's what we pray that he would do today so that for the remainder of our pilgrimage, this could be a passage that you could bring to our remembrance as we have need of, Lord, and our desire to live a life like you, Jesus, in this world. We pray for your blessing upon your word, not only in this room, but as we pray so often, everywhere that it's being taught in Modesto, in the surrounding area. Lord, we plead with you, not only for us to be strengthened in our relationship with you, to become all that you want us to be as your children in this world, but we pray that for the whole body of Christ in this community and the surrounding communities, strengthen us today, bless us today, be what we need you to be in our lives today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Jesus has been invited into the home of one of the rulers of the Pharisees for a meal. 
And the man that's done the inviting is an interesting man. We're told that he is a Pharisee, and, uh, and the Pharisees were the kind of conservative wing of Judaism in those days. They were very strict, uh, strict beyond the demands of Scripture. Uh, they were legalists, to be sure. And so he was a Pharisee and, uh, and, and a leader in that that. Uh, sect within the Jews. We're also told that he was one of the rulers of the Pharisees, which probably means that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. And uh, the Jewish uh, religion and the Jewish people there in Jerusalem, they had a group known as the Sanhedrin. It was made up of 70 men, uh, 71 actually, but in general 70 men. And they made all of the kind of rulings. It was a ruling kind of body related to the Jewish religion and conflicts would be brought to them or the interpretation of Scripture. All kinds of things would be brought to them. And they were the 70 most powerful and influential uh, Jewish men, Jewish people, period, not only in Jerusalem, not only in Israel, but all around the world. Uh, Jews, no matter where they were around the world, were influenced and affected by the decisions of the Sanhedrin. To be a member of the San, Sanhedrin, or Sanhedrin, two different pronunciations, was to be one of 70 in the entire world. Now, we'll see in just a moment that this invitation that this man has given to Jesus uh, to come and dine at his house wasn't... Uh, a desire that he had because of great respect that he had for Jesus or he's extending the right hand of fellowship to Jesus and wants to bless him. Nothing of the, of, of the sort is going on here. This whole thing is a setup. The whole thing is a trap. The interesting thing to me in this and just kind of teaching us about how much grace Jesus has is he knows it's a trap. He knows it's a setup. He knows everything. But he goes anyway. And I mean, it is really gracious of him to do that because Jesus, for all of the faults of this religious group that's in this house, they are actively and currently planning for his death. They want him off of the page of human history. They want him dead so bad they can't express it in words. That's their attitude toward him. And yet when Jesus is invited to come to the house for the dinner, he comes not because he was looking for a meal, but because he's coming to the world to save the whole world. He's still throwing the nets out, throwing the truth out, throwing the, the gospel out to these religious leaders, and he'll continue to do it all the way until he dies on the cross. Now, notice that Jesus and this Pharisee, they're not alone at this dinner or this luncheon in verse 1. There's a larger group of people present and indicated by the word they. And we're told that they are watching Jesus very, very closely. So this is not a casual lunch where everybody's just having a good time. They are watching him very, very closely. And notice what they're watching. There's a man that's present in the house who had dropsy. So this thing is a trap. And this man who has dropsy is the bait in this trap that they're setting 
for Jesus. Now, dropsy is a physical condition where the body begins to retain fluids until the body is greatly, you know, in, enlarged. And it's a painful, dis- uncomfortable condition, but a, a painful condition on top of it. And dropsy is just kind of a symptom uh, problem, always an indication of a, a greater problem in the man's life. He could have kidney problems, he could have liver problems, he could have a heart problem. He has some other major problem that's manifesting itself in, in, uh, in this dropsy. So and it, he's there in, located at this meal. He's, he's physically deformed as a result of, of the dropsy, probably in some considerable pain. And uh, they've planted him in the middle of that luncheon to try and trap Jesus because they know what Jesus is going to do. They know that when Jesus walks into a room, unlike Maybe most of us, maybe most of us are like Jesus in this sense. But when Jesus walks into a room, he doesn't look and say, what's the most prominent seat in the room? When he walked into a room, without exception, his eye went to the person in the greatest need. And they knew that about him. He's so well known for it, they could set the trap up. You don't have to bring 20 men in with dropsy. Just bring one man in with dropsy. Bring in 500 Pharisees, he'll spot the man with the dropsy. He's going to do it. So he's the bait in, in the trap. It's also very important to recognize that all of this occurred on the Sabbath day. The specific reason that they were watching Jesus closely is to see whether he would heal this man on the Sabbath day. Which, if Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath day, would not have been a violation of the Old Testament law. Jesus never violated the Word of God. He came to fulfill it. But it would have been a violation of their interpretations of the Old Testament law. As I said, in all likelihood, this is a a setup here, an attempt by these religious leaders to try and find some kind of a reason or an excuse for rejecting Jesus as the promised Messiah. They've been trying for three and a half years to find one reason to reject him as the promised Messiah, and they're still searching after all of these years, a little different than than the band uh, on on that. Uh, But that's what they're looking for. And the reason that we're kind of free to conclude here that that this is a trap and they're, and they're trying to uh, you know, find this fault in him, is that this man would have never ordinarily been uh, invited to a feast of the Pharisees. This wouldn't have happened. The religious teaching in that day among the religious leaders and certainly among the Pharisees was that if a person was deformed in some way or had a physical affliction of some kind, that it represented the judgment of God. After all, God's word said, if you obey my word, I'll bless you. If you disobey my word, I'll curse you. So in their understanding of, of the Old Testament, they looked at it and they took it way beyond what God was saying in that. And when they saw someone with some kind of a physical affliction or going through a deep trial or something like that, they felt free to conclude that that person is on the judgment side of God. And so why should we come along and try and comfort this person or help this person? If they're not right with God, what can we do with about, about it? So they worked this whole thing up in their minds and it allowed them to just disregard all of the need around them as saying, well, what can we do? 
God's against them, and so it would be, it would, it, we'd be disloyal to God if we ha- even helped the person out. So they, they never invited these kind of folks to these kind of, of luncheons. The second reason we can view this as a trap is that they're watching him closely, which is not the tone of a, a normal meal. The word watch there in the original language in the Greek, it's like, it's, uh, it's a word that's used for what we would call like a secret agent today where you're watching but you're trying not to be noticed that you're watching. So they're all watching him with a very, very critical eye. Does that make for a nice lunch? You just choke on your uh, BLT, well, mutton, lettuce, and tomato sandwich, right? So, So this is the whole vibe of the thing. They're looking for a fault. And it's also interesting, I think, to note in verse 3, that when we're told that when Jesus broke the silence and he spoke to them, that his speaking took the form of an answer. He recognized this is not an honest lunch that's going on here. This is a test. This is a trap. This has all been set up to pose a theological question to me. Now, Jesus, in verses 3 through 6, he proceeds to take their test, and, uh, and he answers this kind of, unasked question, but the obvious question that they were asking, and that is, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? You've got to like that about Jesus. Here they're dealing with deceit, and they got this guy over here, and then they're all watching out of the corner of their eye, and you know they know what this whole thing is about, but they can't give it the appearance that it's really all about that. Jesus never deals in deceit. So the whole thing, I mean, the bio, it, it, you know, it, everything is open. Everything is light with God. And so he looks at it. He knows what's happening. And so he just speaks straight into it. I know, what, I know what's going on here. I know what the question is. And, and I know what the test is here. And, and the question that you're asking is, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? So he posed it back to them. Now their response is interesting there in verse 4. Uh, silence. Uh, part of that might be that they were just shocked that he would kind of out them in this way. Man, were we that obvious? Everything's obvious when you're trying to trap God. Everything's obvious to God. So here they, they may be shocked a little bit that he's so direct with them and could see so thoroughly through what, what it was that they were doing. But I think that they're also silenced in the light of the fact that they cannot, uh, in... This question that he poses to them, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? Uh, it, when they responded in silence, it, it exposed an absence of a firm biblical basis for their position. They would have loved to have had chapter and verse to throw back at Jesus and say, no, it's not right to heal on the Sabbath day, and you've been doing this for three and a half years. They didn't have chapter and verse. They had their traditions. They had their man-made ideas. They didn't have a verse from the Bible. So that's what Jesus is confronting them with. God, be careful when you try and trap God. He's way smarter than us. He's always going to come out ahead on this. So he kind of exposes them. But they have no answer. And, and that's what Jesus is wanting to do. They're trying to try to paint Jesus as violating the law of Moses. And he's giving them a chance to prove from the law of Moses that in healing this man, I'm violating the law of Moses. They have no ability to, to do that. And so they sit there in silence. So what does Jesus do? Verse 4, proceeds to heal the man, and he lets him go. So there you have heaven's answer. 
Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And heaven's answer is, yes, it is lawful to heal on the Sabbath day. That's Jesus' answer. And then you notice after healing the man, he dismisses him. In other words, uh, you're healed. Let me get you out of this environment. You don't need the aggravation. Go home and be blessed with your loved ones. Now his question to them in verse 5 is also an interesting one. Jesus then posed a second question to them, and he asked them, which of you having a donkey or an ox that's fallen into a pit and uh, needs rescuing wouldn't pull him out immediately on the Sabbath day? Now to pull a donkey or an ox out of a pit, that requires considerable effort, doesn't it? A lot more effort than would be... um, Uh, allowed typically by the law of Moses concerning the Sabbath because it was to be a day of rest. But in this kind of extraordinary circumstance of an animal that's valuable to them fallen into a pit, uh, Jesus knew and the Pharisees knew that they would have absolutely rescued uh, their valuable uh, animal. And I mean, there's, everybody knew that in the room. And the point that Jesus is making is that their interpretation, uh, in, is that in their interpretation of the law, they found a way to show mercy to their animals. Jesus is saying, isn't it interesting, you found a way to interpret the law of Moses that allows you to be merciful to animals. Isn't that something? And yet you deny God the right to show the same mercy to a human being on the Sabbath day. And and so isn't God free to do the same thing with something that's more than an animal, people created in in his image. And so Jesus is just saying there's something wrong with an interpretation of God's word that results in treating animals better than people. So I, I do agree that sometimes it's easier to like animals than people. Dogs are they they they're great well I'm not gonna go get into that whole thing, but they're something, aren't they? So Jesus then, as he confronts them again with this, and, and here you've, you're, you're willing to interpret God's law in a way that you're going to treat animals better than you're willing to let God treat people on the Sabbath day, and their response in verse 6, silence. This is called check and mate. They're cornered. There's nothing they could say to Jesus' sanctified logic. And you can be sure they were not happy. It was not a happy lunch for them. Or lost their appetite at that point. Now the lesson of this whole exchange is a very, very valuable one. And the lesson to me is when we find ourselves in doubt about what to do in a given situation, when we find ourselves in doubt about what God's Word says concerning a particular situation, it's always much better to go on the side of mercy and grace than on the side of legalism and harshness. Jesus spoke to these religious leaders elsewhere concerning their tendency to always go toward the legalistic side, the harsh side of things, to the neglect of of mercy on on issues that the Bible doesn't address dogmatically. God gives a lot of room in a lot of places in his word where you look and you say, listen, I can't tell you what you're supposed to do in this situation or what God is going to do in this situation. He could do one of four things. 
The legalist will always take and say, well, there's only one thing you can do here, and it's always the hardest, it's always the harshest, it's always the most miserable, the most demanding thing. And as if there are no other options there. And, there and, and very often there are other options. That's what I'm talking about. When God addresses something specifically, thou shalt, thou shalt not, there's no movement on that. We just obey that. But there's a lot of situations where you look and say, well, what do we do here? And I think that if we're going to err, and in order to be like God, we need to err on the side of grace. When in doubt, be merciful. When in doubt in a situation, you look and say, well, I wonder what she meant by that. I wonder what's happening there in that situation. I wonder what's going on in their life there. I wonder, I wonder, I wonder. When in doubt about whether to extend harshness or to extend grace, always extend grace. Always extend grace will be much harder to the, cl- the heart of God as we do that. And I- I'll tell you just from practical experience, extending grace when in doubt, it keeps us out of a lot of unnecessary trouble. Keeps us out of a lot of it. And, and it's also a very peaceful way to live. And I think that the most importantly, when we extend grace instead of harshness or this kind of condemning thing, we can be confident that we're in, in line with the heart of Jesus as we do so. And I think this is one of the great blessings of growing older in the Lord and by, by walking with Him for, for months and for years and for years is that as we walk with Him, this usually occurs by the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our ministries. Early in our Christian lives so often, at least for certain kinds of us, and early in our Christian ministries, the things that there were these things that we thought were so important and worth going to war over and, and all of these kinds of things and fight here and die here in this place and, and they end up giving way to grace. Where you just look at it and say, No, you know, I fought there once, twice, three times. And I completely misjudged the situation. And now when I hit that kind of a situation, I just look at it and I look at it through eyes of grace, understanding of grace. They can, this can be about three or four things that I don't know anything about. God can be doing things I have no idea are happening here. And so in my heart and in my action and in my words, I'm going to extend grace toward this person and toward that situation. And it's one of the great things about growing a little bit older uh, in the Lord. And boy, does it keep us out of, of hot water. I can think back on times, and I think that all of us probably could have, as we've walked with the Lord for a little while, where we, and this is why we learn. So often we learn from the mistakes where we look and say, wow, as the thing plays out, and you say, ah, oh, I wish I had extended grace and given the benefit of the doubt at the beginning on that situation. And so, when in doubt, extend grace. And then, as Jesus is there in verses 7 through 11, they've been watching Jesus, right? 
But what they don't understand is that Jesus had also been observing them. So he speaks a parable to them as he observed their activity at this luncheon. And uh, with a parable, a parable that's known as the parable of the ambitious guest. And he speaks this, verse 7, to the other guests. So there's quite a large group of Pharisees and lawyers that are there. Lawyers are religious leaders too. They've been invited to the meal with this ruler of the Pharisees and, and Jesus. And so the issue that the parable is directed at is there in verse 7. And uh, when Jesus entered into the house, he took notice of how each of these others when, who had been invited to the meal, when they came into the room, they immediately made a beeline for the best seats in the room to sit down, the most prominent seats in the room they chose for themselves. Now, the most prominent seat at a meal or a feast was a seat at the host table. If you couldn't get a seat at the host table, then the most, next most prominent place would be the table closest to the host table. The least prominent table in the room would be the table that was the furthest away from the host table. So this is the, the kind of the layout uh, of, of the room. And so as people walked in, Jesus noticed that they just automatically made their way to the most prominent seat that was available. They came in and said, all right, what's the most prominent seat? What's the, you know, most, where the most important people sit in this room? And they made a straight line for those seats and, and they sat down in, in, in the seats that, that held the greatest honor. Without giving a, a second thought to whether they warranted such a seat. Does the host even think of me in these terms? Do I have this kind of a relationship with him? How much does he value my relationship? But no, that goes into their thinking. They made, went, what's the highest seat that's still available? And they made their way straight to there. And they seated themselves on the, base of their, on the basis of their own sense of self-importance. Uh, and so you've got this open display of, of pride and self-importance and, and uh, selfish ambition and self-promotion and self-self-self, right? And you notice it's a religious crowd. So how can religious people, they're not going to take the best seat. I mean, they're not plagued by self-promotion and selfish ambition and self-exaltation. Then you've never, ever been to a church potluck. (laughs) When the whole church is invited to then form a line, the food. And see uh, who hustles up there rather quickly, you know, on all that. Now, Jesus' correction of this selfish ambition and this self-promotion, verses 8 through 11, he said, when you're invited to a wedding feast, that's any kind of gathering that that we might be invited to, he said, don't sit in the best place. And he gave us a reason. He said, lest we force the host of the feast to publicly humble us by asking us, to leave the seat that we've chosen for ourselves and to take a lesser seat in the room. So you picture it in your mind. Some of us don't have to picture it in our mind. We've already lived it. Maybe not in this exact form, but we've lived it in some way in our life. And you've walked into the room and, wow, there's a seat still left at the head table. Sit there, right there. I can't believe it. I'm sitting with all these people. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. He's not worthy. He's going to be booted from there in a moment. So he puts himself in that place. 
And the master of the feast has a friend who's been a friend for 60 years, comes in and everything. You come and sit at the, at the you know, head table with me. And he comes in and he looks around and says, who doesn't belong there? You don't belong there. So he says, what are you doing sitting at this? I mean, I invited you, but I, I never thought you'd take this position. So could you find another seat? And he would seat his, his close friend at there. Now, when a host is uh, in the room doing that kind of activity and moving around, everyone in the room is watching the host. So this is a very public event. And the person has to get up from the seat and then walk all the way down and find now uh, the remaining seat, which is going to be where? Lowest table, lowest chair at the lowest table, the way we sometimes fill up these seats. And so you just think about the, uh, the embarrassment of, of being asked to leave this table and go find another seat. I mean, it's a very long, embarrassing walk. And uh, it's true that with self-promotion, as Jesus said here, you run the risk of humiliation. Whenever we promote ourselves, we're always setting ourselves up for a humiliation, and most often for very public uh, humiliation. And it, it's a pretty miserable experience. It's always better to be humble than to be humbled. Always better to be humble than to be humbled. So Jesus in verse 10 said, So instead of coming into a room and taking the very best seat, he said, when you enter into a room, sit at the lowest place. Just take the lowest table, take the lowest seat. And the reason, you can't go any lower than there. Nobody can ask you to go lower when you're in the lowest seat. You're either going to sit in that room perfectly at peace. Huh? I have an invitation. I'm in the room. They can't kick me out, so I'm in here. So there's no hum I'm not going to be publicly humiliated in the course of this luncheon. The only thing, the only change that could happen in my life, in the light of the seat that I've taken, is that the master of the feast may see me sitting at too low a table and invite me to take a table closer to the front. There's a lot of peace in humility and in taking the lowest place. To take that lowest place, it removes so much anxiety. It takes us out of the competition in rooms like that. There's no drama. We're not worried about anything. We can sit in the room and completely enjoy ourselves. So Jesus said, just take that, that lower place. It's the peaceful place. And when you take the lowest place, you don't have anything to live up to there. And uh, then you leave it in the hands of the master of the feast to promote you uh, if he desires to. And if he desires to, guess what? That's very public too. What are you doing, Joe, here at the lowest table? How long have I known you? Get up! I saw someone at the head table. Doesn't belong there. You come with me, right? So, and they get up from the table and everybody at the table goes, Who's Joe? I thought he was a nobody. Took the lowest seat here. I thought he was just in for the sandwiches. And, and then, well, it's a lot better to be exalted or taken to the head table, isn't it? Than to be taken from the head table and taken to the lowest table. Two very different experiences. I've experienced both. I like, I like the, the one much better than, than the other. The Bible teaches, and this is important, that as God's children, 
We can take the lowest seats in life without ever being overlooked by God for promotion. We will never lose anything by taking the humblest seat or the humblest place in any situation. So how do we know that? Psalm 75, verse 5. Do not lift your horn on high. Do not speak with a stiff neck. And then here it is, verse 6. For exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. But God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. We never have to worry that if in any ministry, in any situation, in any invitation that we receive, any kind of whatever, we take the lowest place there. We never have to worry that we're going to be overlooked by God. God will take care of us. So he says if you have two choices when you walk into a situation, choose the lower one. And that way, when God promotes you, you'll know that God did the promoting And the principle, and the principle is also a promise there in verse 11, Jesus said, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled. He didn't say mostly or every once in a while. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. There is no exception to that passage. It's just a matter of when and where. But just as true, And he who humbles himself will be exalted. God will always humble the proud and he will always exalt the humble. And humility, taking the lower seat, allows God to come in and bless our lives and exalt our lives in a way he sees fit and and promote us as, as he desires to do that. One of the great blessings of humility is that it makes us like Jesus. I'm convinced Jesus came in and took the lowest seats. He didn't say, well, boy, I came into the room, I was 45 minutes early, beat all you guys here, and then as I sat at the head table, all you guys came in and just about crowded me out. He came in, took his seat where dropsy people hang out, and he watched this whole thing unfold. To take the lowest place, take the humblest place, to be like Jesus. How so? How much did he humble himself to come into this world? Much less than die for our sins, die the death of the cross. Philippians chapter 2, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant, coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Here's the promise. And therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Jesus not only preached it, but he practiced what he preached, didn't he? Now finally... In verses 12 through 14, Jesus then turns his attention to the man who had done all of the inviting. He was the host of this this, uh, luncheon. And again, this whole thing, Jesus is addressing the theme of selfishness. I know none of us are selfish. We don't have any of that in our heart. 
And, uh, but I, I, other churches, they're filled with these kinds of people. And I want you to know what to say to them when you talk to them. So this theme of selfishness, man, it is in us. You never notice when someone gets ahead of you in traffic or in line, the parking lot. I mean, you never notice. Hardly. I mean, hardly. Well, you never. I mean, you never get upset or frustrated. No, it's in us, isn't it? Is it is it possible to invite people to dinner for selfish motives? You bet. They're great company. He's a, he's a laugh a minute. I mean, this party won't be anything without them coming. Oh, we'll invite them because, you know, they, as they come, they'll be forced to invite us for their Christmas party. And man, do they serve better food than we serve at this one. I mean, they'll have to get it. The Bible says that the human heart is deceitful of, of all things and desperately wicked. You think about that. Do you realize that my heart, your heart too, there is nothing more deceitful in the whole wide world than my human heart. It is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? God knows it. That's why he gives us this instruction on selfishness. So he says, listen, when you're hosting these kinds of dinners, don't only invite those who can repay you with a return invitation, verse 12. He's not saying that you can't invite your mom or your dad or your brother or your neighbors or, or your friends. He's saying just make sure that, those, that you don't only invite those people all, all of the time. So when Jesus looked around that room, all he saw were these highly religious people, very prominent people, very wealthy uh, people. He didn't see any common folk. He didn't see any needy people there. So he wasn't saying, you can't invite these people that you want to. He's just saying those shouldn't be the only people you ever invite over for dinner or you do something uh, for but that they should invite the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blindest as well. In other words, those who have no hope of repaying your hospitality or repaying you for that, that meal or that kindness. And the reason he gives there in verse 14 is, number one, it's a good test for our motives. Again, we can invite other people, friends, loved ones, uh, other acquaintances, business partners, all these kinds of things. We can invite them with a lot of very squirrely motives. But Jesus is saying, when you invite these other folks in for a meal and you know they have nothing to give you, nothing to bring into that room but their appetite, that would be a test of your motives for, for why you have these dinners and why you invite people over. And, and so it, it, it really does. It, it, it tests our motives. And the second reason that it's good for us is the, and the Lord tells us to do it is that the Lord will make sure to reward those kinds of actions or those kind of invitations. And he rewards it, number one, with the blessing of knowing that inviting this person to come to my house and they have no hope of repaying me that I am doing for them what Christ has done for me. How could I 
ever repay him for what he's done in my life. Spiritually, physically, mentally, emotionally, what he's done for me. So it's to be like him in the world. And there is a feeling, there is a witness of the Holy Spirit that happens inside of us when we do it. And it feels right. And it feels good. And it's one of the priceless feelings that we experience in this life. And the second reason that Jesus tells us is that, I mean, he promises that he'll reward it. But not only just the blessing of knowing that I'm doing the right thing here, but Jesus also promises that we're to know that there's a heavenly reward for our kindness when we get into heaven. God looks at it and says, I, I don't know what that just did to your food budget, but I'll take care of it. I'll take care of it in this life, and then I'll make sure to take care of it in the life to come. He promises to reward it. He notices it, and he'll reward it. So Jesus here, he rebukes the selfishness that's in all of us. Am I safe in saying that? Okay. And he, re he rebukes the selfishness that's found in all of us with three wonderful exhortations. When in doubt, extend mercy. And almost always... As the circumstance plays out, you will find that you are on the God side of that situation. Number two, be humble. It's better to be humble than to be humbled. Jesus was humble, and we're to be that too. And then number three, to be kind to those who have no way of repaying. And the Lord has been kind to us as saved sinners in ways that we have no way of adequately repaying. Wonderful exhortations, even rebukes to my selfishness and needed ones. What aggravation we will avoid in life. Practical. I mean, these are just good practical, everyday, going to the mall later, some parking lot, some invitation to someone's house where there's 20 people or something. I mean, just good, practical, you know, exhortations for how to live a peaceful and a Christ-like life. Our selfishness gets us in so much trouble. I don't want to be in trouble again because of my selfishness. And here's three wonderful ways to avoid it. Let's stand together and we'll pray.